Hi, Margaret. Hi. Welcome back for part two of our conversation, part two of who knows how many of our conversation <laughs> about access and inclusion in the outdoor play and learning environment. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. So many things rolling through my mind as I arrive into this conversation wondering, where shall we be led to next? Where shall we lead each other? (laughs) I'm also so excited to follow the threads. I was hoping we could start today with So last time you mentioned that at the Lion and the Mouse, your urban outdoor play program in Montreal, you developed a shadow program to be able to support all the various needs that children show up with to the program to support all different children to thrive in the program. So can you just let's dive into that and share how did you structure that? Did you have to find additional funding? How did you do that? How how might that be replicated by others in everything? Absolutely. So the real thing that kicked us into gear to get going was having conversations with other groups and realizing that our ratios were even lower than what other people were operating with, in part because our community and our membership had a lot of diverse needs. So talking to other four school programs and realizing, okay, so we have low ratios or slightly lower, okay. And understanding that we had some complexities in running our programs that weren't necessarily occurring in all places. And turning around and having this moment amongst our team and thinking, it must be somebody's job to help pay for all this. Because like a lot of organizations, we were small, we had tight budgets, passionate staff who are there for love, not money, ultimately. But seeing that this need is there and saying, okay, well, there must be a way to meet it. You know, there must, there must be somebody whose job it is to make sure this stuff happens. You know, we're showing up, but we can only do so much with what we have financial resource wise. And um, so we're based in Quebec. And in Quebec, we have these regional units, like sport and leisure units. And what I think is interesting here is I know a lot of people don't generally think of forest and nature school as being leisure or sports, but free play, time outside, all of this, it fits into that. It, it can fit into that realm. And that point is that since I, you know, I can explain why outdoor play is so much more powerful than leisure as in a way to fill time, if you take that sense from it. But what matters is that that's how funding for this kind of activity is understood. And so because we're an independent program, not affiliated with a school or a daycare, any educational structure, we're able to go through leisure channels and there's funding at the ministry level for inclusive sports and leisure activities. So in school systems, they have their funding for additional supports for for children with disabilities that are often managed by a code. In daycares, I know in Quebec, we also have a program where there's additional additional resources available for daycares for the integration of children with disabilities. And in leisure contexts, this exists as well. Something that's interesting, that was really interesting for us to find out about is that in the leisure context, we weren't required to have the same level of documentation as for example, a school board would. So a child who is awaiting diagnosis, 
well, the need exists. And so that need for support is there. And so we were able to have the funding to provide the support, even if the diagnosis isn't yet received or if an evaluation hasn't been done, which is a bit different than how it tends to work in schools, where if you don't have the official signed paper with a diagnosis, well, then you don't get your code, which means you don't get your money. So that's specific to how it's structured in Quebec. But I do know there's many initiatives in different provinces around creating inclusive sports and leisure. And the shadow programs are not, they're not new, new, like they're not a new thing. What is new from what I've seen and heard is for schools and play-based programs that channel to access those resources. So to say, even if we understand our work to be massive and touch every sphere of a child's life, sometimes it's helpful to, to be able to look at, okay, well, what's the legal framework I'm operating under? What is the box they see me in? And okay, that's the, that means, I guess that's a learning I've had over the years is that even though I see that this work is very transversal, funding can be very structured and there's nothing wrong with saying, oh yes, I'm part of the world of sports and leisure because, and, and being able to say, yes, I'll accept your money to make my program accessible. <laughs> And of course, knowing anyone who shows up in that program is going to feel that it's transformative. Yeah. So that's sort of how it how it got started. Uh, the program that we that we work under, it's called PALIM. It's the program for accompaniment in leisure for the island of Montreal. And it's something that exists in every region in Quebec. So often you'll have a local association of sports or of sports and leisure which will be responsible for managing these kinds of programs. So if you're not sure where to start, seeing is there a regional sports and leisure association can be a way to do it. If you're in a school context, I'm sure you already have your frameworks there. And same in, in daycares. It's worth digging to see what can exist for the additional integration support. And once the supports show up, how you incorporate them in your program, the approach that you use to shadowing is yours. It's it's an operational decision based on how your program functions. I, th I think what's interesting in our context is as part of the pro putting the program in place, we had our staff had training from the organization that manages the funding and a great organization called Alterco, who did some training on, I think it was about three, about three hours online, sort of a, it's a bit of a quick and dirty, but it's great because I mean, as we're finding already, you can, you can go so deep into all of this, but it, it gives some concrete tools of, well, what would I do in the event of a meltdown? What would I, how could I consider uh, making an activity inclusive so that everyone is actually a part of it. So I definitely recommend if you're getting, if you're looking into the idea of, of shadowing, if you do find another way to, to fund shadows. I've also, for example, working with Canada Summer Jobs for a day camp, been able to double funding by saying, okay, I still need a facilitator, but I also now need a shadow. So those are ways for, for the summer position. Sometimes if you name that there's a second kind of position now, when you submit your funding applications, well, now they might fund both, which is a very helpful endeavor as well. But to get that that bit of training as well and to consider, okay, once this person has some training that gives them some 
some orientation around concrete situations that might arise and, and how they could be supportive to the kids to also consider well, what's what's the role of the shadow program in your program. We touched a bit on this last time, but are we adapting? Are we integrating? Are we including? So are we changing? You know, are we starting with a plan and changing it when we have to so that's so that everyone can participate? Meaning are we specifically changing our activity for the disabled child so they're effectively doing something different than the others? Are we trying to to make those make some small changes so that the disabled child can be part of a standard activity or a standard group functioning or are we really reimagining the way we're functioning as a group so that it is an environment in which everybody thrives together which is that including inclusion component if you're interested in inclusive education there's like a wealth of <laughs> of of a whole world to discover <laughs> I'll get you to suggest, you know, a few starter resources on that front. Before we go any further, okay, so you've mentioned some funding sources that folks can pursue, training, and then thinking through sort of the undergirding approach or philosophy to how the shadow program is going to work in your setting. And I'm wondering when you talk about inclusion as reimagining the program so that everybody can thrive, that seems like an impossible bar, like sort and sort of a paralyzing bar, potentially like one that might get us stuck in like, well, how am I going to anticipate all the possible needs that could come my way? So two questions for you is how do you anticipate as best as possible and is as best as possible the bar like what sort of standard can we hold ourselves to yeah because including everything sounds like this sort of perfection bar and it does and I'm happy you use that word perfection it's because there is no such thing and I think something to understand too is needs fluctuate over a day so even if you've done the most stellar job possible to make a perfectly inclusive program plan well somebody might show up and be like actually that was me last week and then now it's different so in this creating this inclusive program I think of it more as understanding how you're inviting people so when you invite someone to come, are you giving them reasonable access to what they need to be able to participate? And once they do start to participate, are you listening to what works and doesn't work for them? So a lot of it is co-constructing your program with your participants. It's, it's arriving and having a wagon in case you need to carry the backpacks for somebody but also being okay if you don't ever go anywhere farther than where you met to start your day. So when I think of that, being able to imagine a program where everyone can be part of it, I think it's honestly, I mean, as, as people register, I like to invite them to share about themselves. I often say, tell me about your child. That's a place where parents are more likely to share things that's where someone might might slip in a, like loves bees loves mud sometimes runs away and you're like oh sometimes runs away first of all thanks so much for communicating that and I'd love to hear more 
you know, in what situations? Are there specific triggers? Does this happen in all contexts? Do you have a code word or a safe word at home you use for when it's gone too far? These are all pieces of information that otherwise someone might think, well, but I mean, often informs it's like, does your child have a medical condition? And you say like, well, it's not a medical condition, but it is something that impacts how they are able to participate or not. And when a parent names that a child that you should, that you should perhaps anticipate some challenging behavior I really consider, um, you know, all forms of behavior, a form of communication. So to understand, well, what is this child going to be trying to communicate with me? And so trying to create a program that is as inclusive as it can be involves listening to all the forms of communication that are being shared with you during your program. It is impossible Not only is it impossible for one person to somehow see all the needs that could exist, in my personal experience, it's also impossible to have an entire program where everyone's needs perfectly coexist. And so that's where so much of it is in recognizing whose needs are being centered, is normal being centered, you know, is performance being centered? What it? What are we... What are we asking to adjust for the sake of, you know, group, the harmony in the group? So noticing, is it always the same person who's being asked to change their behavior? You know, it's not, you know, the, it, someone might who needs to move and make noise as things are happening. It might over time become difficult for other people in the group to be close to that constant, you know, but we can consider how can both part, bo- how can that need for expression be acceptable to the group dynamic, or I guess like not not compete with other people's needs for silence or focus. And, and sometimes it's, it's as simple as naming that both are needs, and that we need to find a way for them all to be here. Because hey, you're here, and you're going to be here until 3pm. So <laughs> so you when you're designing the program, you don't have to sort of anticipate all these needs in a vacuum like you can seek the information we've talked a lot last time and this time about using the registration process as an information gathering process to to help plan the program so that we're not having to anticipate every single possible need and then also going into it with the understanding that that's going to change and shift moment to moment and then and it's those questions you asked around whose needs are being centered who's having to adapt what is is normal being centered naming things as needs using those as the parameters of your your inclusive your approach to inclusivity yeah and another moment in that program development process that i find really helpful for that thinking ahead towards inclusion. So yes, we have the moment when the families are going to register and share their specific needs. But even before that, well, you've done the work of choosing a site. You've done the work of deciding, well, what kinds of play, you know, what kinds of risk am I able to hold in this dynamic or not? So in with our risk benefit assessments, our, you know, we can get into our site evaluations, our activity risk benefits, all of these things. And something that I like to do is to add a column where it's not just about risk, it's also accessibility concerns. So 
when I'm looking at my site to determine, is this a place I'm going to be welcoming children where I'm comfortable and what do I need to consider? Well, that's where I can also, when I look at the boundaries of the site, I could say, well, also, what are the access concerns in getting in and out of the site? And so if that works done ahead of time, then when someone does register and say, perhaps my child has reduced mobility, needs to use a walker, well, then you already have done that work ahead of time to be able to look at your site and determine well, which part of my site may be, may be accessible to this child? Do I now, you know, how can I ensure more of it is? But if you've done that reflection ahead of time, and I think something that happens is there's a tension between wanting to do everything and deciding where to put your resources and knowing that if the site is not accessible, then no one who needs mobility devices will ever be able to go. So there's a bit of that chicken in the egg. And so saying, I don't need to do it until someone shows up is putting the onus on the family or the child with disabilities, not just to to put themselves out there to you, but then also to hold your hand as you do the work of figuring out how to include them. So when we can consider accessibility concerns in our site evaluations, in our activity evaluations, think it through sledding, Okay, how would I be doing sledding with a child who has has difficulty following the paths for whom it would be really unclear well, which way's down and which way's up? And it could be as simple as saying, I'm going to do some snow paint. I'm going to make a red line is down on the snow and a blue line is up. And that's a visual indicator. But if you can start to to imagine these things and they're things that are going to, you know, developing these these little tricks and, and the other side, it, it grows together. So your site evaluation that you can do ahead of time, it might give you some basic information. You know, you might know, okay, th- this is all dirt here. There's lots of, there's lots of uh, rocks or in this area, I do have boundaries that are clearly visible, those kinds of elements. And then when somebody registers, you can start to see, okay, well, this is an actual person and how might this person experience this environment? And so Getting to know your site, getting to know the kinds of activities you'll be doing there, and getting to know the children who'll be present all weave together how your program may grow over time to become more inclusive. And I think when we do have, so if you do have limited resources, it's a it's a natural thing to say, well, let's first work on being able to include the people who are here. Let's do right by the people who are showing up. And... Let's not forget the people who aren't able to show up yet. The line and the mouse, we've been, I know, very quickly worked a lot with children with, in, with invisible disabilities, particularly neurodivergent children, and would have a stellar summer and look around and say, still haven't managed to, to make this work yet or to, to have that space for someone with a mobility aid. For us, it was a serious challenge. It's not our, we're not owners of the site. We don't have the ability to do serious infrastructure on it. There's lots of work to come, but it's something to not forget. So I guess I'm, what I'm saying is like, like everything in forest school, it's emergent. Everything, it's a process. Everything is in everything. And I think the most important thing is to just start, you know, and even if the first step that you do is as you're doing a seasonal site evaluation, you're walking your site to just start considering how would I experience this site in a, if I was in a different body mind, as we say, if I was a, if I was in a different body, if I was in a different space. So you can kind of get into to lots of, there's lots of, I guess I'm saying there's, there's lots of ways to start peeling an onion. So I'm reminding myself 
and we can ask for help. Like we can, it can always be a conversation with the families that show up or that we want to show up. So, but I'm wondering, so this idea of doing a site evaluation from that perspective of access and inclusion. And and then also like you have a lot of tips and tricks up your sleeve, like that occur to you in terms of like, even what you mentioned with, if, you know, the paths of up and down are not going to be immediately obvious, paint them out. Like what if those things don't occur to us? So, so number one is, can you identify like what the criteria are that you're using to imagine yourself in the space in a different body mind like what are some of the what what are some of the like criteria that you're going through as you because I think there's things like you know mud or deep snow or sort of wobbly rock that might immediately be like okay so someone with a mobility that's going to be a challenge but beyond that what else are you maybe noticing or looking for something I think to a lot is making we'd say like make the make the invisible visible so things that you might perceive without even realizing it make it visible that can mean instead of saying oh yeah like uh, the tree over there is the limit but it only covers one small part of you know it's, it's not a, a clear line could you put something physical there to remind people of the limit because if it's invisible well you may forget it you may not have that orientation in space so I think a lot about making the invisible visible about making what's visual also be something that can be heard and that's making what's only heard be something that's visual as well so that way you have multiple ways to be processing information at any point in time so when I think about it as well to welcome someone with a disability in this space what information do I need to welcome anyone in this space what information is really important to communicate and what are different ways that I can communicate it to increase the likelihood that this information is accessible to everyone so for example if I come back to an example of well what is the limit done things of having kids physically walk the limits you know if you're saying okay so we're going to play within this space because that's the space that I can supervise with everybody right now sometimes moving your body through that space can make the difference for somebody I've also had let's put up a big sign to remind you had the if you hear this noise you've gone too far so to have lots of different ways to receive information around those essential the things that you you absolutely need to be able to communicate some of the other elements that you can get into is I think a lot of it is asking and noticing. So if you feel you've done everything you can to communicate the basics and something still is not quite working, to understand that challenging behavior or all of our behavior is a form of communication and to dig into, okay, so what's going on here for you? Is there something that wasn't clear? Is there something that's like a need that's not being met? And to recognize that children may or may not actually come to you for that conversation breaks my heart, but there's plenty of plenty of children I've seen who are just happy to be invited in the sense of happy that they're able to show up in some way, even if they can't be at the center of what's happening. And so going and, and finding, well, what's being communicated by where you're placing yourself in this group? What's being communicated by 
the way that you're playing the games that you're the, the type of play you're choosing. And I think it's a lot of noticing, asking, being open to shifting, and again, recognizing that parents are an amazing resource. And if a parent does choose to share a diagnosis with you, well, now you have a search term that may help you uncover other information and always being sure to look for information that comes from disabled people themselves or has been approved by sort of, I guess, in terms of developing the reflex and like the, they come as you know your community of people, they come as you know your site. You can know that this section when it's muddy is real slippery. I might never have known that, you know, if I came on a dry day to your site, I might not have, have understood that there was the slippery mud pit is an issue, regardless of having more experience, perhaps in considering shadow programs and supporting children with disabilities and outdoor play. So it's also, I'm realizing like a lot of the work, it's reframing a lot of the knowledge that we might already have or some of the practices that we're already doing and realizing like, oh, that's knowledge that supports inclusion. It's not just knowledge that supports risk management or knowledge of my site. It's also knowledge that supports inclusion or the practices that I'm using to recognize difficult behavior as communication. That's also an inclusion practice. So that's an encouraging piece. I'm wondering if you can share maybe a story that either is like a shining example of a success story that jumps to mind from the shadow program, or on the other hand, like maybe one of your most, your biggest learning experiences where you were like, oh, Kate. There have been so many beautiful, bright moments. And what I feel most compelled to share is not one of those. And it maybe speaks to the challenge in holding space for inclusion in programs. As I've shared previously when we have spoken, I have two children, both of whom are autistic, neurodivergent, bold, beautiful humans. And in their time in the shadow program, one of them in particular went overwhelmed or experiencing significant anxiety, could have behaviors that are quite challenging, meaning could, you know, from time has bitten somebody, have hit somebody, all of these things. In those moments, I think what's the hardest is to understand the behavior and understand that it's not coming from a place of malice. In fact, it's often coming from a place of feeling excluded and then lashing out, one could say. So understanding where it comes from and that it is not a sign that that person is a bad person and still being in the situation where the behavior itself is not acceptable. And then layering on the feelings of other children's parents who may or may not be aware of the situation this child is living. So in some situations I've had, I've chosen myself. I think if I take this one concrete example, I had a a parent very irate complaining that their child had been bullied. Their nine-year-old was being bullied by this kid. And I'm reading the email and I'm like, oh, just, yeah, just waiting for the ball to drop when you write my kid's name. My kid at the time was five. So that was a, yeah, this nine-year-old's being bullied by this five-year-old in camp, won't leave them alone, even tried to buy him off by giving him cookies and he still kept coming back. And I'm reading this and my heart is breaking because I know this child and know 
he's trying to make friends. He's 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 coming back over and over because he's trying to reach out. And yes, it's annoying if he keeps saying the exact same thing, but also it's because he's not sure how else to engage with you. So I'm I'm experiencing this knowing, understanding the the what's behind that. And now also learning that this has been an upsetting experience for this other child and having to then say, you know what, in an inclusive, when we're striving for an inclusive program, like, here's the big secret. Customer's not always right. You know, is to then say, actually, it's more complex than your child's feelings in isolation. Like, thanks for bringing this these, these feelings to our attention, but this is something that needs to be addressed within this group dynamic and directly with these children. This isn't an angry parent comes to me and complains and therefore I punish the child for the behavior, which I think is something that can be challenging for parents who are particularly in a program looking for their child to have their child's best day. So I think one of the pieces that's been a challenge for me and took time to to learn the ropes of is when parents of non-disabled children have to also adjust for themselves their expectations of what an inclusive program looks like and what the goals of it are. And accepting to move a little slower, perhaps, or to two different kinds of, of work together, but work that actually can be done together in our play. There's that that moment of who are we centering and who's having to adapt both their behavior and their expectations. So building the inclusive culture, it's not just about, okay, what supports can I provide and what changes to the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's really about building that culture with the children, but also with the families around what's being centered and naming, you know, the dominant culture of ableism, which is like all the isms, I think, largely invisible to those of us who benefit from it, right? Absolutely. And, and a really simple first step for us that we found helped was to just be sharing about that, that process, the flow of the program, and not saying, look, we made fires, look, we built this big thing to, st- to, to get out of that performance was a great invitation for parents of non-disabled children to also get out of measuring how their day, how their child's day was by what their child accomplished. Right. Okay. So that's so fascinating about even the end of the day sort of interaction with, with parents and caregivers can be shifted for inclusion. So if we can move away from, we did this, we we accomplished this, but to emphasize more the process of things or the re- like relational. Yeah, and I think, uh, to be honest, I think it all comes down to what is the goal you have with this program? Why are you bringing this into the world? What impact are you hoping to have with the children who are present? And how are you doing this for all of them? You know, if you're in a learning, a a more structured learning environment, where, for example, you'll have to give a report on progress on certain developmental goals. Well, you know, that can exist within your practice. But are those developmental goals the thing that you always want to be centering in your conversations? Or are they something that you accept is part of your practice? but not 
the only reason why you've chosen this approach. There may be parts of forest school that speak to things much larger than child development. I hope there are. You know, I see forest school and play and reestablish or establishing relationships with the land as a really amazing space for liberation for everyone if we engage in it this way and accept that this is a learning process. But yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I've, I've had before where shared an adorable Instagram photo of kids with a fire and got a message from a parent saying, my kids group didn't get to make a fire. And it's saying that wasn't that wasn't the right fit for your kids group this day. But I can tell you they still had a, a great forest school day. Like, yeah, so I'm it's again, like, it's so interesting, like speaking to you. It's really making me realize that what I thought inclusion meant and looked like from the planning down to the practice, it's it's not what I thought it looked like. I was envisioning a very different bar or standard, I think, than what is helpful. So as you're speaking, I'm pulling out these sort of concrete techniques or concrete things I could implement. But it's, yeah, it's not just like, oh, find some money to get a shadow or build a ramp or it goes right back to what are my, what are my goals? Like we can start with what, what am I trying to do here? Because then that influences what I communicate about. It influences how I'm going to envision the day or the activity, that inclusion shift. Yeah. And I think to recognize like your goals for your specific program also come from your way of seeing the world. So to know, to ask yourself, what am, what's influencing my goal choice? What's it informed by? Which community is behind me or have I not engaged with? So there's a lot of how am I arriving to this work matters just as much as what am I trying to do with this work? And those are all questions that are really going to have an impact on how you welcome people into it and who feels welcome in in what you're offering. It's good to know that there that you know in breaking down barriers to our programs we so in pursuit of this good we may encounter resistance from you know good people it it reminds me of that podcast like nice white parents yes (laughs) Yes. so good intentioned forest school or outdoor play parents may resist our efforts to break down barriers. And so it's like the pursuit of this good thing might not always feel good or might feel confusing and definitely uncomfortable. I think we can like bank on discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think if we avoid discomfort, then we avoid the important work and to understand and to ask yourself, well, if if there's discomfort and you're leaning away from it, then who's left there? And generally it's going to be the children or people with disabilities who are, are left in that, that space. If you do have that, the ability to, to make your programs more inclusive and you don't, you know, inclusion is 
fundamentally connected to ableism, which is fundamentally connected to other forms of oppression. It's about who's being centered, as you said. And something I like to say here is I know, I think what's, what can be helpful to recognize for people as well, we think of well, what is work you're already doing that is going to help you along your way? Any anti-oppression work you're already doing is also going to feed into this. So if you have taken time to understand how you will welcome gender diversity in your program, if you've taken time to put in work, decolonizing your practice, building relationships with Indigenous communities where you are. These are all things that are stretching your legs and practicing that work of decentering white, able-bodied, normative. These, this sort of, you know, you can, the, but it's like it's, if you can decenter the so-called norm, you know, get away from the image of the typical child in your program. The more you can decenter that, then the more you are able to to practice that understanding how other people may arrive in your space and how you're influencing that for them. That seems like a really beautiful place to pause, if not end today. You mentioned that you have something that you've written. Is there, would you like to share that? Yeah, I could share that. I think that would be nice. This is just something I felt compelled to write coming home from, from one of my my classes in critical disability studies. You know what, though? I'm going to read something different right now. Connected to that last note we were just on. And that's maybe how we can close out for today. Yeah, exactly. So this is something that it's from a collective called Sins Invalid based in the United States. As we challenge white supremacy, settler colonialism, gender normativity, and violence that targets trans people, we challenge able-bodied normativity. Through this clearing practice, we create disability justice. Yeah, reading that really um, took me to a different place in my work towards inclusion. I encourage you to follow, read, celebrate the work of Sins Invalid and other disability justice activists, dreamers, builders. Yeah. Thanks, Margaret. A clearing practice that will sit with me for a while until we next chat.